From Noble Robot on East Hennepin Avenue in Mashup, Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Stephen McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. In this episode, we talk with Millie Walker, developer of Mythcaller, the Nightmare Shaman, to discuss fusing two genres together. So, everyone's ready? Let's start. I'm excited about this topic because I feel like it kind of comes up every now and again, the idea of like mixing mechanics or genres, but we've never really focused on it. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm really interested too because I always... I feel like I just have constant trouble with the idea of genres in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's just like my literary history of reading tons and tons of sci-fi and fantasy, which blend together like pretty often. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to games, like I have a difficult time sometimes drawing the lines between different things. Yes. So, uh, Well, we could speculate for a long time, but we're not here for that. We brought in the guest. So let's introduce uh, Millie. Welcome to the show. Mm-hmm. Hey, glad to be here. You're gonna help us with this. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll have a nice debate and it'll it'll be great. <laughs> oh, or or we're gonna be debating apparently. Oh, okay. Yeah. Was that was it did no one get the memo? Was it just me? I, I sent it out. It's supposed to be debate. Um I won't argue with that. Okay. Um that's the end of the debate. <laughs> yeah. So Millie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like how did you get into game dev? What have you been working on? So one day one of my friends sent me Game Maker 8 when it first came out. And I thought, wow, this is way too complicated. And I <laughs> shut it down and never looked at it again. <laughs> at least that's what I thought was going to happen. About a month later, I picked it back up again, uh, followed the tutorial, and then went, that was okay, I guess, but this isn't really my thing. And then I shut it down again. <laughs> But then in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, maybe I should give this one more shot. My friend seems really excited for me to be in this. I'll just make one little thing and then tell him to go screw off. (laughs) Well, now here I am about how many years later, like 12, and I am still making games. So I guess I have not shut it down since. Nice. Third time's a charm. That's the saying, of course. Yep. We all kind of have a little bit of that. Like I think that we, you know, you 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 inch into it a little bit, and slowly you're just like, oh, uh, you know, you'll pick up more skills, and then you start doing more things, and then eventually, you know, it becomes your full time job. Um, <laughs> so I feel you on that. I kind of have a similar experience with my own my own journey into video games. Yeah, and I think it's really also very common because game developers, even the people who focus on one field in game development yeah always have to learn something else there's it's always more than you really bargain for right and right. so it's really easy to get into these kind of like funny conversations about yeah. how like yeah it's so bad i'm doing i'm living my dream <laughs> Ugh, <you know>? <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i think that it's, it's interesting to hear like you like a lot of people come to it from there's the art and science of game development mm-hmm. and people come into it for the science they're like i'm really interested in computer science i'm a great programmer and then i'm going to start making games and then they end up becoming a novelist in their like huge narrative fiction work or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then there are people who are like, oh, I'm, I'm interested in the the art of it. And so then it's like, well, I guess I got to learn the science. Mm-hmm. And so there's any number of ways in and none of them are correct or incorrect. Yeah. But you're always doing more than you bargain for. Yes. And that's that's something we can all share, even though we have different backgrounds and different, you know, utilities and talents. Absolutely. 
Always. And it doesn't stop either. Oh, now I have to learn a new input system because Unity changed? Amazing. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Totally wanted to do that in the middle of a project. Oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> you're, bringing, you're bringing up some drama here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, am I. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, okay, let's see if I can do this. Right? So video games fuse a lot of different Oh, she's doing a transition. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> nope, I can't. So it's okay. I give oh, okay. up. I give up. I give up. I want to learn. So I we're going to talk about fusion and fusing genres, but one of the ways we're going to get there is by, I think, doing a little bit of a discussion on the game that you're currently making, right, which is Mythcaller. So tell us a little bit about Mythcaller. I mean, we can, we'll link to the website and the Twitter and everything um, at the in the show notes and everything like that, but like, give us your spiel. What do you, what makes you excited to pick it up and work on it? So what makes me excited to work on Mythcaller is it's really nothing that I've seen before. Uh, one of the things that really drives me as a developer is to have things exist, where if, if something already exists, if the idea that I'm making has already been released and circulated in the market for five years or something, I... Mm -hmm tend not to be that interested in making it because, well, I could just go out and play it. Right, right. But for uh, Mythcaller and really most of the games that I make, I am excited because I can sort of explore the game in a way that I've never been able to explore any other game just because no other game can really make the design decisions that I'm making with Mythcaller. Hmm. Because there's nothing quite like it. You often hear stories about people from way back in the day creating genres like adventure, platformer, RPG, and whatnot, and you'll hear stories about how they come across different aspects of that genre and how each aspect of the genre is created. Well, I want to do that with basically every game that I make. I never want to reinvent the wheel. And that's why I'm really excited to work on something like a Mythcaller. What genres does Mythcaller blend for, for our listeners? Steven, use the right word. Uh, I said blend. Is that the wrong? Oh, uh, fuse. Thank you. <laughs> Fusion. Fusion. Yes. <laughs> yes. What genres do are fused um, in Mythcaller? <laughs> the game is a 3D collectathon monster taming game. So uh, the platform or the different genres that it fuses together are like uh, 3D platformer, collectathon, kind of like uh, Mario 64. Uh, you got the monster catching RPG elements, kind of like Pokemon, Shin Megami Tensei, Dragon Quest monsters. And alongside that, it also has a lot of voiced over cutscenes with those cutscenes having their own cinematic genre that harkens back to early 2000s games like Ratchet and Clank, Attack and the Power of Juju, Spongebob Battle for Bikini Bottom. So, quite a lot of genres here. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. All this, I mean, it's particularly, it's interesting you bring up the narrative genres versus the video game, or the mechanic genres, because um, I think that's something that is kind of I think that's something that blend that gets mixed up when when we're talking about genres in video games specifically, because like we have like a, a horror genre, right? 
everybody knows what that is. It's, the intention is to scare you, but there are a bunch of different types of horror games. Um, but most, I feel like a lot of times when we talk about video games and genres, we're talking about the mechanics behind the genres. Like we'll call something a shooter because you, you're, uh, we're a first person shooter because your act is you're in first person and you're shooting at stuff. Um, but then like portal is considered a first person shooter because that is what you do, but you don't like actively shoot bullets at enemies or something like that. Right. Um, so I'm curious how you would define a genre for, for video games specifically. So, it does kind of depend, because the way I personally think about genre is more of like a tool. I don't usually start with the idea of, like, I'm going to make a Metroidvania, for example. It's more like, I want the player to feel this. I want you to interact with the game's world in this way. So, fusing these aspects of these different genres should work perfectly towards the feeling I want to convey. So for me personally, genres are just sets of tools that I can use like uh, in Metroidvania is the whole aspect of picking up an item in order to progress rather than opening a door or whatever completing a stage, hitting a goal ring. So if I want to use that tool then I'll put in that genre, or I'll think about the game in terms of that genre. But I also feel like that's kind of limiting at the same time. Uh, So as a whole, I would just say a genre is something that contains parts of things that came before you, but also they're just parts. They shouldn't be restricting you. You don't have to follow every tenet of every genre in order to be considered that genre, in my mind, at the very least, or else we're all just going to end up pigeonholing each other into creating the same game that's been created from the 90s and before. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree with that. I think it's interesting that the way you describe how you came to to, uh, sort of pick the genres you're going to use in this game, because I think the looking at the materials for your game on your website and on the Steam page, it's, it seems that it's pitched as a mix of this and that. And, and that's sort of, a lot of games are like, it has a little of this and that and like 10 things. But I think in your materials, it very much seems like it's that 3D collectathon and monster hunting RPG, as you described it to us. But as you also described your development process, it wasn't that you picked those two things to put together because it would look good on a Steam page. You, the development process is more organic than that. So it, it, it's sort of telling that how you pitch a game or how you describe it once you've made it is different than the steps it takes for you to produce it. Right. Would you say that's accurate? Oh, yeah, completely. Uh, you caught the marketing exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is basically what I did. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up is because I, I, um, I have also worked on a game that uh, fuses genres together. Um, and the way that we, we came across this idea was we tried to make this other game and it didn't work out. And then we were like, and then we, I think we just started talking about different ways that we could approach this, uh, this game. And then we ended up like, I think we ended up approaching it by combining these two genres together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was also part of our marketing strategy because that was how it was communicated to us initially. Um, so it's interesting that you, you know, you came to that idea without 
um, that initial thought process. And then imagine, I mean, every game's initial iteration comes differently for everyone. But uh, um, I think that is fascinating that we came across it in two different ways. But, you know, we, we still market it similarly in that, like, in, in, because that's a method of communication, right? I think that's part of the benefit of genres is so people can understand what it is that the game is right like yeah. what what are you likely to enjoy there's just a huge so many games out there and really anything that has these kinds of categories it's part of the reason that they have so many categories is just because there's so many options out there you need those kinds of categories you need genres so that you as a consumer know where to look to be likely to find something that you're gonna like um and that i have a question about that later but i also wanted i didn't quite want to leave this this idea of process quite yet because you mentioned something earlier, Millie, that made me think that this is something that you do for most of the games that, or for many of the games that you develop, right? We've been talking, I think, with Myth Collar as kind of the example in the back of our mind, but it sounds like this is something you've done more than once. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how that process looks like across some of the multiple games that you maybe have done this kind of fusion on. Oh, absolutely. And a matter of fact, I know a series that I used to work on that would highlight it perfectly, especially... Uh, put up against Mythcaller. So, Mythcaller is sort of like a spiritual successor to another series that I made before called Xander the Monster Morpher. Now, that series was not a platformer, but it was a monster-catching game. Mm, okay. It still had the real-time action aspects of Mythcaller, but you can see it's more of a proto-primitive idea that would eventually become uh, Mythcaller. And the idea originally started because I was making a pretty normal sword and sorcery top-down action RPG. And I thought, you know what? This game has essentially been done a thousand times before. Uh, there's nothing I'm going to do with this game that hasn't already been done by Seiken Densetsu, uh, Zelda, Hell, even some 3D games like Dark Souls. So, instead, I'm going to have you play as the bad guys. They have really unique attacks compared to the main character who just, you know, has a sword and fireball and whatnot. Hmm. So what if I do that? I started playing around with it, and immediately I just completely forgot about the sword and sorcery game. That was out the window. <laughs> The minute I programmed the player as a goblin, being able to use the goblin's really unique attack set, like the spinning thing that he could do all the way across the stage, was a lot more fun than just the normal thing that a human character would normally do. So then I expanded it. I rewrote the story to be more surrounded, or to surround more of a sort of like playing as the bad guy but not really type angle and then it just evolved and evolved more and it evolved more added in uh, multiplayer into one of the games i added in a system that would allow cross play between uh, the mobile and the pc and it just grew and grew and grew until eventually i thought you know what i've done everything that i can with xander i've reached the limit of what I can possibly do with this idea while still rigidly sticking to the same design. What can I do to bring this into the next level? And I thought, you know what? Why not do 
what a lot of games did back in the 90s and make the jump to 3D. Hmm. And as soon as I did that, so many <laughs> different design principles just jumped out at me. Uh, so many genres actually became available to me just from that switch to 3D. Hmm. So I'd say that switch to 3D was actually one of the biggest light bulb moments in the entire franchise that made me go, you know what? Let's throw in some more genres here <laughs> because we can go further. More, and more. The funny thing is, it wasn't even a moment of like, you know, we're just going to add in every idea into the bucket and hit frappe. Instead, it was all to further the original idea of Xander. It all works together. It was all done mindfully, but it's still just more. So uh, that's kind of how the genres evolved to me. It all started with just action RPG sword and sorcery, and then through years and years and years, slowly adding in more genres, more conventions into the game that would fit, it eventually became the absolute cluster of the genres that it is now. 3D, collect-a-thon, platformer, RPG, real-time combat, you know, that didn't come... You know, on a lazy Saturday that came after years and years and years. Were there uh, were there any ideas that you remember having come up like, oh, I wonder if we mixed in this element and then you thought about it some more, you tested it out and it ended up on the cutting room floor? Yeah, so originally when switching to 3D, I was going to make it a bit more RPG-like because I thought, you know, if we're going to 3D, I can't have the combat be quite as fast because with a 3D camera you can't see as much around you as you can in a top-down camera. You can't see behind you, uh, for instance. So my way of originally slowing the game down was to make it much more bogged down in the stats and in the whole monster building process. But that didn't quite work for the game. Hmm. Because you'd have these super fast-paced, high-energy, high-octane moments. And then you would hit this big brick wall where you would need to micromanage your party for a solid hour or so in order uh. to get them ready for the next high-octane part. And I would imagine people who are really into the high-octane parts are not going to want to sit there for an hour at a time in the middle of the story to go, Hey, should I put fireball on my dragon? Or, But then you've got the other side of the coin where people that would really enjoy sitting there for an hour micromanaging every cell in their monster's bodies would probably not like it to go into battle and have to do frame-perfect inputs in yeah. combat. So I thought, you know what? I'll still keep in the RPG aspects, but they're going to be pretty simple, very Mario RPG-like, and instead have the gameplay be slowed down by being more of a collectathon, having to slow down and survey your environment mm. rather than having these big, super high-octane moments, and that ended up working a lot more. That that's an interesting that's an interesting thought because I. Uh when you you know combine certain mechanics and genres into a thing um it it can alienate fans of a particular 
type of game. Um, I uh, so the game that I work on, Finchance. I'm just gonna use that as an example because it's the first thing that came to my mind. Um, it is a it's a side scrolling shoot 'em up. Um, but it's also a, a, a roguelike roguelike game. Um, and so I think people who maybe want to play the game, um, but aren't or because they really like roguelikes, um, aren't necessarily going to be interested in the shoot 'em up aspects of it. We try to combine the two so that like you know things worked out, but uh, it is it could still like turn people off from the game because because like they have to care about an aspect of games that they don't want to have to care about. Um, and I imagine you've probably experienced similar things with with audiences uh, with your your audience as well. Um, that kind of experience. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh- I still get DMs every now and again about Xander, no less. Last one released <laughs> in 2019. Uh, they say, man, why don't you make a turn-based monster game? Monster games should be turn-based. Mm, and yeah. at that point, I just got to say, sorry, buddy. Uh, there's a bazillion of them out there. Uh, you can play those to your heart's content. I can even recommend quite a few to you because I've played a lot. But at the end of the day, this is for... Someone look or this game is for someone looking for something different, not for you know a, yet another turn-based monster game. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is to say, I'm not you know talking crap about those games. They are very good for the most part, but when it comes to alienating people, I'm not too scared by it just because I'm. Fusing the genres mindfully and in such a way that I'm keeping in mind the overall feeling that I want out of the game, and I'm mm-hmm. keeping in mind the different genres of people that would be coming into the game. But at the end of the day, I can't exactly make the game something that it's not just to appease people mm-hmm. that want it to be a very specific thing, especially since there's already a lot of that specific thing out in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just want to make something different for the people that want something different. Yeah, and that that leads into what we were talking about earlier about uh, how you present the game and how you market it. If I mean, yeah, there's going to be people who maybe want the thing you made before, but someone who boots up this game is going to know what it is. Yeah, and so you should have some some, uh, some take some comfort in people not being surprised by those things. But then it comes back to how you put these things together. So. If someone's like, oh, I like those two genres, I would like to play a game with those two genres together. That person is still coming in with a lot of expectations, like yeah. how they expect it to work. And th- and so the question as you develop is, as you say, you, you didn't just say, I'm going to take template A and template B and put them together. It w- you describe it as more organic than that. But you still, as you work on it, you still have to be mindful of those expectations, I suspect. So how do you find it to feel... Because you're telling people it's a mix of these two things. And so it sort of has to feel like it's this thing and this thing yeah. rather than one thing because that's not really what you're telling them. So am I making any sense? Does, like, how, do you, how do you sort of meet or um, guide those expectations as people start playing when they interact with some parts of the genre A versus genre B? Uh, absolutely. Uh, there's two different ways that I do it. Uh, The first way is to always be mindful of how one genre is affecting the other Mm -hmm. and try my best to fuse them together completely and totally Uh, so that if you're super into collective thoughts, the monster-catching aspect of it should feel as much like a collective thought to you as possible. 
so that you don't feel so alienated about it. I wanted mm-hmm. to make sure that catching monsters felt no different than picking up a power-up in Mario. But then, on the other side of the coin, you have the monster people who are coming in wanting something like Pokemon, something like Shin Megami Tensei. And to those guys, I try to make every collectible in the Collectathon make your combat better. So you have uh, equipment rather than just like stars or coins or whatnot. You have uh, things that increase your maximum team size so you can equip more monsters. You have things that are kind of like the Estus flasks in Dark Souls where they're like reusable healing items. You can find those out in the overworld so that way neither side is really feel like they're neither side is really feeling like they're being neglected because both sides feed into each other and feel completely natural. The other way that I do it and manage expectations is I always try to start games and start levels with something that immediately gets you in the mood for whatever the game or the level is about, be it a cutscene, be it introducing stage elements really quickly. There's not a lot of downtime in the game, and that does wonders for setting up expectations for players from what I've seen, for testers, because there's no moment where they're going to be sitting there going like, you know, I wonder if this game is going to do this, this, and that with these genres. There's no wondering. I throw it at you right away, at least in a microcosm, to let you know this is what the game is about, this is what you're going to be doing. No, you've probably not seen it quite like this before, but if you stick around, this is essentially what you're going to be getting. Yeah, that's smart. Introduce them right away. I mean, and get people engaged in it right away, too, with that, even the idea of these uh, of things combining in this certain way. Yeah, um, that well, makes a lot of sense. good tutorialization as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it totally makes sense. Part of the reason that, you know, part of what makes a good tutorial, I guess. Yeah is you learn the game by playing the game. You may not know this, but this show costs money. It does. It's not not free for us, folks. It's not. (laughs) So I'm I'm going with Guilt Trip this time. Okay, okay. Is that a good uh, uh, sales technique, do you think? I like it. Okay. It works on me all the time. (laughs) You didn't pull these mics out of the garbage? They didn't come out from holding upon thou. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got equipment costs. We yes. got hosting costs. Yes. We have rent now because we have a studio that we're we recording. Do. But you know what? You don't need to know about any of that. All you need to know that if you want to throw us a couple of coin, you can do that on Patreon. Mm-hmm. And not only do you feel good because uh, you'll absolve yourself of the guilt that I've thrust upon you. Right, right, right. Um, but also, you'll get some cool stuff because mm-hmm. uh, we have some exclusive content yes. on the Patreon like... Uh, Ellen's dog pictures. Those are always fun. Oh, yeah. We have a bunch of episodes of Boston that we edit or that we were making it um, that are uh, up there. Live game design sessions. Live game design sessions. Exactly. Also, additional content. Ellen made us do a thing. That was weird, and it was fun. What did Explain it no further. Yes. Okay. I forgot, I guess. We have uh, bonus segments from our 200th episode, mm-hmm. and the 300th is coming up, you guys. It is. So we're very likely going to have extra content on the Patreon for that as well. Um, it'll. There's plenty on there to keep you busy, and more always. Yes. So uh, check it out. Support the show. 
patreon.com slash nice games club toss a coin to your podcaster as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming i wish i had used indeed if you need to hire you need indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast ditch the busy work use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and indeed doesn't just help you hire faster 93 percent of employers agree indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent indeed survey and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com podcast that's indeed.com podcast terms and conditions apply one of the questions I wanted to ask, and I think we've asked this kind of by like, oh no, now I'm talking about paths again. And the last time I tried it, it was a whole disaster, which we didn't get on. We did not get on mic, thank goodness. So I'm not going to try that again. Okay. I think we've already answered it. We just didn't ask the question directly. And that is, how do you know you've gone too far and mixed too many things in? But maybe the flavor of the question I need to ask now that we've kind of talked about this a little bit is, what are some feelings that you get when you are noticing the design getting like misaligned, right? You've talked about the need to, when you're blending in elements from different genres, making sure that they are part of a cohesive whole. Um, and I'm curious, like when they start losing cohesion, what does that feel like? What warning bells go off in your brain that something's wrong and you need to take a look at it? And if you have an example, that would be great too. So the warning bells typically go off when it seems like the game is too disjointed, when the genres aren't mixing hmm. as much as they feel like I'm just throwing a bunch of toys in the toy box and hoping that they all go together. Uh, the actual tangible feeling usually feels like uh, when you'll go through a game and you'll start picking up things that allow you to adjust your character, things like equipment, uh, new spells or whatnot. But then once you're done customizing your character, all of a sudden you come across a large temple full of puzzles that have nothing to do with all the stuff that you just picked up. Ah, yeah. Okay. I'm not going to mention any names, but I have played a game like that recently. And the entire time in the back of my head, I was just thinking, like, this feels like two games. Mm -hmm. and once you get to that point and you know I, I'm not just talking crap about this other guy this has happened to me too I've already mentioned the thing with the uh, RPG elements uh, so this happens to everyone and you get to this point where you go hold on this doesn't feel like a game with two different genres anymore this feels like two different genres that I really like that I'm duct taping together yeah mm-hmm and that's usually the moment where you got to step back and go, why isn't this working? Could I do something like adding in more combat to that puzzle area to make it feel like the player 
has more of a reason to pick up all that equipment before the dungeon. Should the dungeon even have all those puzzles? Should all this equipment be before the uh, dungeon if the whole point is to be like a puzzly dungeon crawler? I don't know. It depends on a case-to-case basis, and that's the moment where you have to sit down as a developer and go, what isn't working here? What do I want the feeling of this level to be? And what can I do to make the different parts of this game feel more cohesive rather than feeling like I'm going to need to go to Home Depot to pick up more (laughs) tape? (laughs) That's a fun way of describing it. (laughs) Puzzle in and of itself sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's really, yeah, I think that's really helpful. Just trying to think about like, I feel like, I feel like, creation is so intuitive i mean there's a huge amount of analysis to it right like mm-hmm. we were just talking about like when you're you were describing Millie, you were describing getting those feelings of like oh this doesn't feel like it's hanging together and then you've got to analyze why right like there's a huge amount of analysis that has to come in when you're making a thing like this but it that feeling starts with just like this intuitive pull like mm, maybe this will work or mm, this isn't working and that's interesting to hear you talk through what that feels like yeah, well, and you said that you you're very intentional with the things that you're adding to the game, which I applaud. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Love that a nice game club. Um, and so, like, I think it, it's 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 probably easier to uh, to figure out what isn't working when you're very you very intentional about what you're what is going into the game and what is not. And you can it's a lot easy, it's a lot easier to tell when something is not working as a result of that because it's it's more of a slow, methodical build, and grow, and then and shape the game i'm 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 like trying to describe it as though i'm shaping a bonsai tree but he's using I think his hands i am I'm using the hands um steven what happened to your bonsai tree um <laughs> never mind moving on why do you gotta bring that up <laughs> you brought it up oh, bonsai God. trees <laughs> um um so yeah yeah i think that i think that makes a, a, a lot of sense um to 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 approach the game in that way um and to you know to 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 be more slow and methodical about how you're combining things together um because it, it can very quickly go off the rails as you were describing and you know sometimes it's not anywhere near obvious what it is sometimes mm-hmm. it can be something completely unrelated that doesn't feel right that can end up making other parts of the game feel right oh that's a good point can can you uh name an example if you've got one i'm curious Uh, Yeah, Uh, sometimes, and this is one of the craziest examples, uh, sometimes a level design can feel completely off just because of the colors of the walls. Mm. Sometimes you can think like, oh, this dungeon is too claustrophobic, the level designs need to be a lot larger, I need to make everything 20% bigger. But in reality, you just made the walls really dark, and it's kind of like... Uh, interior decoration you just shrunk the room yeah but if you make it a bit lighter oh the level design is actually very open it just feels claustrophobic Mm -hmm. which can make Mm -hmm. you accidentally do a lot of things that actually are not that good for the game like if you were to actually make that room 20 percent bigger not only would that probably take a while but so you know your publisher is going to be mad at you but then afterward you're going to be walking around the level going, man, it takes a really long time to get anywhere. Yeah, don't it? <laughs> <laughs> the, and it just turns out to be, you know, an art asset. 
Uh, so sometimes it's not always obvious what's yeah. going to make a game better or what's causing you to have that feeling. Uh, sometimes it's better to let somebody else play it, but other times it's not that good, actually, because they might latch on to something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that won't be the actual problem because, you know, they might not be game designers. They might not actually really know what they're talking about. So if the room just seems too small because of the dark walls, they might attribute it to something completely different. Like, oh, your character moves too slow. <laughs> and if you go along with their advice, you could very well end up with a very hodgepodge game just because they had nothing else to work with in that moment. So it is a very rough process sometimes. Yeah. Very complicated process, but, you know, it's all part of the job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, actually, because you brought up something that made me think of, like, conventions in different genres. Like, um, oh, the only example I can think of right now is a red barrel. In the shooter, you shoot at that and it explodes, right? But like maybe in another genre, you could pick up the red barrel and it would give you health. Um, and those are conflicting, obviously, right? Um, and so I think you have to be a little bit more particular um, about how you're approaching the how you're pro- approaching communicating how things work in the game, um, because you might end up confusing players, making them think a certain thing when they're actually supposed to be thinking of another thing. And I imagine that is even, you know, you have to do that anyways with any game, really. Right. But I imagine that is even more difficult with this, with, with when you're when you're blend, fusing a bunch of things together. <laughs> yeah, you have to sort of step out of the conventions a yeah. little bit because you're you're yeah you're it, you're mixing it together, so mm-hmm. not all the same rules are going to apply. Right. But the player doesn't know that. Yes. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, like you were describing, like it, it might just be a art asset issue. That's that. That's something that I've always preached on this show about holistic design. Mm-hmm. It's like they say, oh, if, if there's a problem, double a number or half it. It's like yeah. that's great advice a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that might not be your problem at all. Right. Yeah. And you'll never figure it out if you just stick to that one kind of solution. Like, mm-hmm. why does this movement feel slow? Well, I'll change all the things about its speed. But in fact, that's not the problem. Right. And you'll never know that unless you, from jump, think about all the possible things that impact that feeling. Yeah. Right. right. Which yeah. is everything in the game. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, so, you know. <laughs> Get to it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, that does make me wonder, like, I hadn't thought about this, but because of the fact that genres are conventions, right, and players might play, they will probably have more experience in one genre than another, because how are you so still, like, I don't know, like, who has equal experience? Yeah. Or anyway. And more experience than you as the designer, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, potentially. Right. So how do you find playtesters that w- will give you the input that you want? I mean, like, of course, playtesting, you can't just take what people say at face value. You have to do some analysis. You have to ask them questions and dig a little bit deeper into what they're saying. Right. If they say, make the room twice as bigger, like, you, well, why do you feel that way? Yeah. Um, but how, you know, how do you go about finding people to playtest your game? And how do you run those sessions knowing that you're going to be remixing some things that they might have become really habituated to? So it's a very complicated process, especially as an indie dev. Uh, for a AAA company, I imagine they have legions and legions of people that they can call upon to do their testing. But as an indie dev, I've found sort of sections of people help with different things. I have one friend who is the same guy that sent me Game Maker 8 all those years ago, so... <laughs> Very important guy. (laughs) 
But when it comes to video games, he is a very... How to say this politely, because he might be tuning in. <laughs> He's a very non-genre-savvy guy. Very down-to-earth, street-smart guy. But does not really pick up on things in games that much. And I know that about him. So I kind of use him to test for things that like a normal person would be thinking when they're going through a level and whatever he says to me while he's playing a level i can trust that that's basically how a regular average joe who doesn't play a lot of video games is going to be thinking about the tutorials are they clear enough about the genre conventions is it really weird to him it doesn't make sense to him i uh, and sometimes it's really funny you have to take your different testers backgrounds into consideration because something that might be confusing to him might be very normal to somebody that i get from my discord yeah you know, someone who's a fan of the game and really loves the genres that they're in Something that they might find very weird, like, oh my god, it's a collectathon and a monster catcher? How? What? It was completely natural to my friend, hmm. my real life friend, because he didn't see things in terms of genre. He just saw a video game. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, uh, even though I've gotten the criticism of the game from some, like, super gamer people that, like, man... Uh, this is this game is so weird. Like I've I've never seen anything like this. This is it takes a lot of getting used to. All of a sudden, my down to earth buddy barely ever plays games. Picks up the game and is like, "Wow, this is what Pokemon should be." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, did they really say that? It's back, yeah, back really. in the box quote right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> so you know that made me feel good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's cool. So, yeah, it really just comes down to get as many playtesters as you can, of course, but keep in mind where they're coming from right. and manage your expectations of what they're going to say based on that. Yeah, it. I'm, I'm kind of reading or listening between the lines of what you're saying here. And what I'm hearing is if you are, you know, as much as you are able to find people to playtest your game who will help you validate some of the most challenging aspects of the design, like challenging in terms of what will be challenging for players and mixing conventions from different, you know, well-established genres is something that can be challenging for players. So you've taken the steps and brought in people from your social circles and from beyond to help test that out and to proof it. Yeah. 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 We figured out playtesting. Well, did we, though? <laughs> Still going to get bad playtesting. That's just the nature of the business. But I think that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, you, you want to get a wide variety of people because there's going to be a ton of different people coming and approach the game. And it'll give you more ideas and you can use, you know, you basically get more data. More data means you can you can iterate off of it more. I guess another question I have for you is like, what what... Bun um what is the term we're using now? We're still using fusion? Is that still the word? It's the same episode, so yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for checking in though. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Anytime. Um have you found some disadvantages to fusing genres together um that 
bits that you wouldn't find if you were just making like a traditional RPG or something like that. Yeah, I imagine um, you can correct me, but I think you're mm. thinking from a mechanical perspective. Yes, yes. Less than like an audience perception perspective. Yeah, I think yeah. you covered that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So there are some disadvantages to it. Of course, you don't have as much to look up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you're just making a straight up collectathon platformer, you have the best in the business there that you can look to for basically every little aspect of the game that they've done right. Uh, like Mario 64, you have his excellent movement, not quite his excellent camera, but you can take that camera and throw it out the window and take it from another uh, collectathon platformer with a much better one like Hattaton and end up with a game that essentially is guided by the people that came before you, but when you fuse it together, or when you fuse genres together, you come across the problem of, like, you'll encounter issues that no one has solved because no one has tried to solve them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot less guidance, and you need to have a much firmer grasp on game design mm-hmm. and on, you know, people in general in order to effectively move past that issue. And, and to that end, I would probably say the same advice that no one likes to hear from teachers when they're growing up, and that is uh, you got to learn your fundamentals first before you start breaking all these rules just Mm. because you need such a solid understanding of the fundamentals to really do this well because I'm going to be real, it is very difficult sometimes. That is a very big downside to it. And you're not going to have as much help as if you just made a normal RPG or collectathon or what have you. So you have to be prepared to sometimes have questions that you need to come up with the answer to, yeah. the first mm-hmm. answer to. Right. Um. Hmm. The the way you're describing this, and correct me if I'm wrong, it reminds me of like um, when you said foundation. I thought of game design pillars. Um, and especially like if you base effectively say this is what my game is, you know, you said these are the three things that my game is. Um, any ideas you come come up with that are you that you have to come up that are unique because this game is unique in a lot of different ways. Um, you can always go back to those design pillars and say, does this match the design pillars that I had already set initially? Um, and I imagine that would help you in the in this in this process of of discovery. Yeah, absolutely. When, when I was working on Fingence, I found that one of the things that I had a difficult time with when I was like coming up with solutions for unique problems um, is that like we would oftentimes go to conventions from specific older games, um, but I found that those did not really mesh well with how the rest of the game worked in a lot of times, or it would make the game feel more like a specific game and less like you know the the game we were trying to make mm-hmm. um and i imagine you've also had those kinds of difficulties too it's and it's hard to like it's it's really easy to just like you know especially if you come into games from playing games it's really easy to just go back to other games to look for solutions for things yeah um but i think that oftentimes the best solutions come from outside of video games um 
those feel like they are the more they they feel more natural and intuitive for players a lot of the time. Um, so I guess this is not a full question; it's a bunch of statements. Uh, <laughs> so I'm curious um, how, how how you've come up with these kinds of solutions. Like where where do you do you come up with them on the fly? Do you go to different sources? Do you go to older games and like twist that to make it fit better with your game, or do you um, go to other things to find your solutions? Yeah, like what's your research process when you hit when you hit a bump? What do you do next? So when I hit a bump, I'll take inspiration from a number of different sources. Yeah, sometimes it is older games. Though usually the funny thing is the older game inspiration is usually a very deliberate choice in something superficial normally, like how a door opens or whatever. I'll do a callback to some (laughs) 90s game or whatever that, you know, if you were around then, you get it, you get it, and it's cool, but like, it's not a very big part of the game. Sure. I usually don't use older games for like very crucial uh, problem solving just because, uh, yeah, true to life, it will make the game feel like that older game. And that's not usually the best thing for this game because if I do something that really worked for Mario 64, it might not work for this game because this game is very different from Mario 64. The movement is more limited to allow for more buttons to be allocated for combat. So something like a wall jump might have worked for Mario ascending to higher heights, but it's not really going to work for this game in particular because it won't mesh with the combat, for example. So what I normally think of is real life. Mm-hmm. This is something that Nintendo actually does quite a lot, where I don't really think of the game and of the problems in the game in the sense of it being a game. I think of it more in the sense of there's a problem with the way this part feels in some way or another. It could be technical, could be you know, with the controls or whatnot, could be art assets. What in life have I seen, have I experienced, that could get me past this part? If there's a very long stretch of land that feels like there's not much in it, should I cut it, or should I do something like add in a vehicle that makes you move faster? Is something that I would like to see in real life if I looked at a long stretch of land that I did not want to walk across. <laughs> Uh, is there a character that I can put there that I would want to see in real life that would help me out in that uh, instance? Uh, things like that, uh, taking inspiration from the things I've actually seen, the people that I've actually met, uh, goes a long, long way in not only making the game feel unique, because, of course, no one has had my exact life, mm-hmm. I hope, but also... <laughs> Just the aspect of being able to convey problems or the solutions to problems in a much more natural way that anyone could understand because everyone understands the things that happen in real life, but not quite everyone is going to understand uh, things like stats in an RPG being adjusted or different game mechanics being added in that aren't quite analogous to real life so i always try to keep things true to life 
as much as possible, even in the most cartoony world, just so anyone could understand the solutions. Yeah, that's a great on-ramp towards the things about games that are unreal, mm-hmm. right? And so it's not not just useful for people uh, who are very familiar with game conventions because then they have something that they can relate to to help them not paper over, but at least guide them through the the parts that sizzle together. Yeah. But also people who are not very familiar with games, it's right. an on-ramp to that. So that's that's a very good, I think, piece of advice is like a, just a general purpose problem solving. Um that's very cool. Yeah, it's the solution that I, I mean a lot of media use too. Like that's how movies work, right? Is they ground you in the uh, in in its form of reality um, that you're in, and then like they introduce the rules to you so that you you know can accept them, and then they can tell a narrative based off of that rule set that they've established. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's smart, clever. I liked the imagery of like standing next to a giant expanse of land, being like, "Well, now what?" <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dune buggy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a hill yeah. that can roll down? Yeah, <laughs> something. That's yeah, that's fun. And then uh, yeah, it, it's yeah, it kind of feels like what you were saying about your process at the very beginning, where you were talking about like, okay, here's this, here's our, here's our state, right? We've mm. got a giant expanse of land, or I'm gonna, you know, I've got this idea for a game, but something doesn't feel like it doesn't feel energizing, or it feels too big. How can we solve this? And then like coming up with some novel way or fun way of changing that state, you know, moving, bringing in some, you know, conventions from a different genre or coming up with like, a, a, I guess, a dune buggy or something to get your character across the, the well, Nebraska keeps coming to mind. So I'm just going to say it. Um, but yeah. like you can, then you can play with that. And that's, that's what it is, I guess, in, in a nutshell, play with it and have fun with it. And if you're having fun doing it and people are having fun playing it, then you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. We solve game development. <laughs> Two solutions <laughs> that we definitely solved today. <laughs> well, I'm glad I was on the final episode. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> solved in under an hour today. <laughs> that's our show. For show notes and links on today's topic, go to our website, nicegames.club. Visit us on Twitter at Nice Games Club, where Dale tweets about game dev resources and Exhausted Man. Hmm. Exhausted Man. Not like Florida Man? No. Okay. Something very different. All right. I'll, I'll look it up. We like hearing from you, so please tweet back or email us. Contact at NiceGames.Club. Nice Games Club is on Patreon. Support the show and get stuff. Sign up at patreon.com slash NiceGamesClub. And if you want to keep things more casual... You can just stop by nicegames.club slash discord and say hello. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 